everybody, and welcome back to the Like Stars podcast. I'm your host, Pete Goodman. Grateful to have you joining us. And today is going to be uh, just a really good discussion, I think. Uh, we are going to be covering a fairly hot button issue, at least for among Christians. The question about creationism, Genesis chapter 1, the whole idea of how old is the earth, all this kind of stuff we're going to be covering today. So I'm glad you're joining us. Buckle your seatbelt. We'll see how it goes. Uh, before we dive into that, just a couple of things. First, if you're listening on the podcast, make sure you're uh, subscribing, you're following, so you get that downloaded every time I come out with a new one every week or so. If you're on YouTube, same thing. Please consider subscribing. I was actually told this morning uh, by a, a younger hit person that I'm supposed to say you should uh, what was it, smash the like button. Uh, when he said that, though, I realized I think I would rather smash myself in the face with a two by four than actually use that phrase. I'm too old to say that. So I'll just say, push the subscribe button because uh, it helps, you know, the growth thing grow and more people see it and things. So yeah, like, share, all those kind of fun things. Uh, and if you have any questions for me, for the podcast, you can always reach me at my email, Pete at rise You can find the like stars podcast on Instagram uh, or shoot me up on Facebook, whatever. Love to hear from you. And uh, yeah, just hear what you have to say, however I can be a resource. Uh, and then of course, uh, as I mentioned last week, um, our, we have sponsors now. Our sponsor for this episode of the Like Stars podcast is uh, that guy who answers the phone in the middle of a movie theater, uh, who with every time he picks up the phone reminds the rest of us that we are not the worst person in the world. So thank you, guy who answers the movie, phone in your movie theater. You are the sponsor of today's podcast. Uh, and with that being said, we're going to go ahead and jump into today's topic. So yeah, here we go. All right. As some of you know that have been following the podcast, this has been a time where I've answered, kind of thought about some different ideas I've had, talked about different things, but also been answering your questions. And I, oh, from the very first time we took questions here at Rise City Church about a month ago, a little over since, I've been getting a number of questions that center around a similar idea about creationism. Uh, a number of them came in, and then even at our open Q&A session at the church, uh, which is available also on this podcast, I even made a comment about leaning towards evolution. And then in a later podcast, another comment just about questions about the Garden of Eden. Like, Pete, how do you read all these things? And so I decided instead of maybe basing individual questions, you know, one question was, what do you do with dinosaur bones? I had a question about how to read it, uh, science and faith, all those kind of things. I sort of took all those questions and just said, you know what, why don't we just dedicate a whole podcast just to this issue? And so while I'm not necessarily answering one specific question, I'm actually answering quite a few different ones that are all centered around this. So uh, at the core of it, at the root, I think you could really just ask the question, how do I, Pete Goodman, read Genesis chapter one and, and interpret it and process it in light of science and all these other things? There's no doubt that that's a, a, a battle that's been raging now for well over a century. The question of science, of scientific inquiry, but also biblical studies. Genesis chapter 1 tells us that God created the earth, the heavens and the earth. It tells us this idea of he did it in six days, um, and then on the seventh day he rested. And if you were to maybe do some rough math, and you would say, okay, then Adam and Eve, and follow Adam and Eve all the way down to Moses, when did that take place? You know, you're looking at the earth being somewhere in the vicinity of seven to 10,000 years old. 
Uh, and I just want to say up front, I am committed to scripture. So if you're, if you're listening or watching this podcast and you wonder, where am I coming from? I am coming from a place of faith. I always will. I'm coming from a place of believing that the Bible is God's word and that I am called to submit my life to it. But that doesn't always mean that I have to read it the same way that other people do. And so that's kind of the issue at play here. Because, yeah, the, the scriptures appear to say that, Genesis chapter 1, but then man, you just kind of take a look around. Scientific study, geological records. I, I mean, it looks like from what we understand of the way nature seems to function that the earth is more like a few billion years old uh, and that life has been in some way thriving and changing on its surface for at least a few million years. So on the one hand, you ask this question of like, well, do I go with science which seems to be telling me this, uh, right? Or do I go with faith, which is over here? And now you have a tension, a tension between my commitment to Jesus and a commitment to, I guess, just scientific inquiry. And I want to say up front that I think there'll always be times that those two kind of maybe like sandpaper rub against each other a little roughly at times, but I don't think they're nearly in the tension that we put it into. But as I talk about this issue with you guys today, I want to I establish where I'm coming from because I could say that, well, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a reasonable, logical thinker and science tells me this is what's true and so I'm sorry, but the Bible can't be true. That's not where I'm approaching this, okay? I am not approaching this from the standpoint of science trumps the word of God. Not at all. If I, if I was convinced the Bible said something, I wouldn't care uh, at all um, what science said. I, I would say, no, I believe it. But the issue for me is a biblical studies one. The issue is what do I actually believe the Bible says and teaches? Because as I've stated before, so I'll say it right now, uh, I am not what is called a young earth creationist. Um, I have friends who are, I, I, <laughs> it's not, I mean, I, friends I work with who are, but I want to explain why I'm not and give you my reasons for it and uh, go from there. So the first thing I want to do is I want to explain though, that there are other views, all the views are represented by Christians, people that love Jesus, and that the view that I take is not because of science, although I think it affirms science, it's actually more because of how I read the scriptures. So let's talk about the three big ways that people have and continue to interpret Genesis chapter one. The first way that maybe we're addressing up front is has different names. Some people call it the literal reading. Uh, literal, you know, that's a hard word because it can mean a couple different things. But what it's meant by that is face value. A literal reading would be like, I believe that the words that are on the page represent exactly what the author meant. So if it says tree, there's a tree. If it says dragon, there's a dragon, right? Like a literal reading of it. And so that would mean that God actually created all things in six 24-hour periods rested on the seventh day, and the world is thus about 10,000 years old. Uh, now, the idea that it's that old is young earth creationism, um, which is, again, we follow the math, we look at the, the genealogies through Genesis, and it puts us somewhere under 10,000 years. Now, someone responding to that would say, well, how do you explain the earth is so old? Uh, how do you explain, you know, all, what looks like, you know, light from the Andromeda galaxy left 
heading our way over a million years ago and you're just now seeing it, how can, how can everything be 10,000 years old? And the answer is what they call creation with age. Creation with age is basically the idea that if I were God and I could snap my fingers and create a person, I would create that person, you know, would they look like they were 25 years old? They wouldn't be an embryo. They'd be a full-grown human being. And so they would be created having looked old. If I snap my fingers and create a tree and I cut it in half, I would see rings, even though that tree had not actually grown. Uh, and if I create the universe, I create starlight already having reached us. So it looks like it's really far away, but really that's when God created it. And let me say this about that statement. I actually think that's a reasonable argument. I don't, I don't look at that and kind of scoff at it. I'm like, no, I, that's, that's reasonable. I, if God, I believe God could do that. So great. Um, I will say just sort of logically or reasonably, I push back for a couple of reasons. And, and the main reason I push back from that is, okay, creation with age with a tree is one thing, but what do you do with fossil records and, and, and dinosaur bones? For good? And that was one of the questions that came in. How do you explain dinosaurs if the earth is 7,000 years old? And I have listened to and heard many, many intelligent young earth creationists give me their reasons for the dinosaurs. And I'm, I just, you don't convince me. I'm sorry. It just doesn't make any sense. I can't find any way forward other than if the earth is that if that if the earth is that young it kind of looks like god is just messing with us he's burying stuff and moving things around to make it look really old maybe to test our faith or something and and i struggle with that i, I struggle with that but let me just say again god can do whatever he wants and if that's what god did and that's what the scriptures tell me then i'll be like Okay. Uh, now there's some other forms of literal readings. Uh, you have historic creationism or gap theory, different different ideas that say, well, maybe the Earth is billions of years old, but somewhere around you know seven thousand years ago, God blew it up and recreated it, or something like that. Which again, I think is like, well, maybe He could do that for the Earth, but for the entire universe, because Genesis one says He created the entire heavens, all of it. 7,000 years ago. So even both of those feel like they run into problems. But where that one seems to run into the most problems is with this idea of a literal reading. It, it doesn't feel like that's a literal reading. It wants to be. It wants to stay true to the scriptures. But a literal reading would read the text as is and say, this is how it happened. So did God create the, the heavens, the universe, the cosmos 7,000 years ago or not? And at the end of the day, this word literal is really the part of the problem where I struggle with. And so again, I told you I'm not coming from science here necessarily, although I have scientific views, but I'm not making an argument from science. I'm making an argument from the text itself. And from the text itself, the, the scriptures themselves, the issue of a literal reading to me has major problems in how you should read and understand it uh, outside of the differences for science. And again, I'll never put science ahead of my faith. Here's what I believe. A true, what you would call literal, face value, real reading of Genesis 1 is, in my opinion, people disagree, in my opinion, impossible. It just doesn't work. And let me give you a few reasons why. First, a literal reading of the text says that God creates the sun on the fourth day. The fourth day. But the sun is required in order to have a 24-hour period called a day. A day on the earth is a rotation of our earth around the sun 
uh, one, right? I'm sorry, no, <laughs> that's a year. <laughs> a day is the rotation of our earth one time around. So the sun comes up and goes down. If there is no sun, there is no day. So how do you have three days without the sun? Um, and people are like, oh, well, maybe it was like the light of God. No, a day, a literal day is requires the sun. Again, we're talking about literal reading here. Um, and then he also creates plants and vegetation on the third day. But we know, because we have eyeballs, that all plant life on our planet requires the sun. So you can't have growing plants that require photosynthesis without the sun. So for the sun to be created on the fourth day uh, and have plants and days before the sun forces me to step back and say, I don't think I can read this literally. I think I, I just it doesn't make sense to me. Um, but here's the deal. That's not the biggest issue with this text. And I know people have responses to it. Well, God's light was the light that grew all things or, or whatever, whatever, and time was in God's mind. That's not the biggest problem. I have. The biggest problem I have with a literal reading is in verse six. If you're following with me, you can open up your Bibles and read it, whatever. In verse six, it tells us, it makes this statement that God separates the water and creates what he calls an expanse. Some translations say a vault between two bodies of water. It literally says he separates. So there's water up there and water down here. Now, a casual reader would hear that and say, oh, so you're talking about like, you know, there's clouds, there's water in the sky, and now there's an ocean beneath us. And if that's as far as it went, I would be like, okay, well, I don't actually believe there's a body of water above me. The ancient Mesopotamians and Egyptians did. We'll get back to that. But okay, there is water up there. And the space between us and that moisture in the sky we call clouds, our atmosphere, if you want to call it an expanse, if you want to call it a sky, a vault, whatever, fine. Okay, the problem is, again, literal readings. The text then says that God creates two orbs to govern the night and day, the sun and the moon, and it says in the text, in the original Hebrew, it says he places them within the expanse and he places all of the lights of the sky within the expanse. So the original Hebrew text, this isn't a translation issue, the original Hebrew text tells us that God in this story places the sun, the moon, and all the stars, all the stars, which are beyond our ability to even count, within the expanse. What is the expanse? The separation of waters. So that means that from a person sitting on the, on the, on the, on the ground looking up, it looks like the sun and the moon and the stars are sort of inside of our night sky, right? We know that's not true. We know that <laughs> there's, I mean, the sun is like thousands and thousands of earths could fit inside the sun. The sun cannot fit in our atmosphere. So if you, as a reader of the Bible, can read that and say, oh, okay, yeah, I believe that's true, then I don't know what to say. I, I there's no way that is true. This is it's not true. We've been to space. We know that's not true. So if I can't read that literally, it undermines the whole argument that I should read any of it literally. Um, because again, the whole idea of a literal reading is based on this idea of like, well, you've got to trust the Bible. If it's if you know you undermine any of it, the whole thing falls apart, it's a slippery slope. And I say, okay, well, let me turn that back around on you because if any of it is not literal and not true, then your literal reading falls apart. And that's my argument. And I, 
I've tried to get good responses to that from people. A lot of times when I come to that issue of the expanse, it's kind of like, well, we don't really know that one. Maybe that's figurative. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but if that's figurative, then you have now told me there's figurative language in this text. And as soon as you tell me there's figurative language, some metaphorical language, I'm going to step back and say, well, maybe I should be reading the whole thing that way, not just the parts that don't make sense to your science. Does that make Okay. And again, my opinion. The people that disagree with me on this are Christians. They are Bible committed. They're intelligent people. They're not stupid people. Um, please hear me. I, I'm, this, we're talking open-handed opinion stuff here. Um, now, that was the first way to read it. A second way to read it is called day-age theory. Day-age theory people, which isn't quite as popular, they sort of want to hold to the text. Like, I got to hold on to the, I, I can't let go of the Bible being real, which again, I believe the Bible is real. But to distance themselves from the problem of science, they say, well, here's the deal. The, the word in Hebrew for day, yom, uh, is translated as day, but it's also often translated as a period of time. Like the day of the Lord is a period of season. So maybe it's not 24 actual hours, and so that takes care of the sun problem. Maybe it's just six um, epochs, epochs, uh, eons of time. Each, each day could have been millions and millions of years. Um, and that sort of works to explain the geological and fossil issues. You know, there could have been millions of years between the first creation of land and actually the arrival of humans. But it also runs into some of the same problems of literal reading because if the days are millions of years, that means plant life grew on the earth for millions of years without the sun. <laughs> so the sun came on the day four, vegetation came on day three. So, oh, well, maybe God's light was growing it. Uh, what? Um, or maybe this isn't how we should be reading the text. Maybe we're missing something. And again, it still doesn't deal with verse six, how the stars could be inside of our atmosphere. The stars, the sun and the moon are not inside of our atmosphere. That verse six cannot be true. We know that it cannot read verse six as a actual description of our universe. It's not reality. Gap theory, basic six-day creationism cannot, I don't understand how you can make sense of that verse. Um, so again, this isn't just putting science that makes me question. I'm not like, well, I'm on the side of science and you're on the, I, I'm on the side of reading the scriptures well. And if something sounds figurative, if something I know, if I'm like, well, I can't take this literally, it step, makes me step back and say, well, maybe I need to question how I'm interpreting this passage. If there's evidence in a given text of metaphorical language, um, and we have the other places of the Bible, right? God will hide us under his wings. Well, we don't think God has wings. It, I mean, Revelation's full of this. Uh, the great 10-headed beast rising out of the ocean. You don't actually think a dragon's gonna rise. It's metaphorical language. So when you recognize metaphorical language, that should cause you to, to like your, your ears should put, hold on, wait, how am I interpreting this passage? Because I know there's metaphorical language here. Um, so should I step back and say, maybe I shouldn't be reading this at face value. Maybe there's another way to read this. And this brings up the third way to read Genesis 1 that I find myself in, um, which not only doesn't disagree with science, it just kind of ignores science. There's another way to read this passage that just says, I don't really care to talk about science because I don't think this passage is talking about science. I think it's asking different questions. Uh, the most common name for this third idea is called a literary framework, which is just a fancy way of saying uh, it's more about poetry. It's more about a, a metaphorical description of something important. And what it's trying to get to at is not how God created, but that God created and what that God is like. 
Um, and let me, let me explain why I think this is a good way to read Genesis chapter one. The view that believes Genesis uh, is not trying to teach us science or chronological order believes that because of one basic principle. And this principle is the best interpretation of any passage in the Bible will always be how the original audience would have heard it. How the original audience would have heard and understood is the best interpretation of any passage. The Bible was not written to you, a 21st century Western American. The Bible was written to uh, Mesopotamian Egyptian slaves uh, over 3,000 years ago, with the part we're talking about. So if you apply an interpretation to the scriptures that makes sense to you, fine, but would it have made sense to them? And that's the problem, because when you go back to their world, you realize that they were not asking the same questions you and I were asking. When you come to the text as a post-scientific revolution person, the question you want to ask the text is, how did God create? I want scientific answers, because our brains are wired that way, because that's just our culture. But it's wrong to assume that people who this was written to, because again, it wasn't written to you, this was written to Hebrew slaves, coming out of Egypt, did they care about scientific answers? And the answer is probably not, no. Our arguments today are often responses to what our culture is asking. We argue with atheists, is there a God? And we're like, oh look, creation, proof of God. But the author of Genesis wasn't writing to defend belief in a creator. Everybody that was reading the book of Genesis when it was first written believed in God's creator, higher powers. There was no need to say, hey, I want you to know the earth isn't an accident. You know, we're not here by accident. We're not here by evolution. God created. They weren't. The theory of evolution didn't come around for another 3,000 years. They weren't asking those questions. Let me give you an example. What if you lived today in India, where people are mostly what we would call pagan, meaning they believe in multiple gods? Everyone is this word syncretist. They have multiple different gods. And this is how the ancient world was. Would you need to go to India and convince someone there is a God? Like, hey, there's a, there's a higher power. No, most of them just believe that. Instead, they wouldn't really care. You wouldn't need to argue for God's existence. You would need to argue for God's supremacy. You would need to say the other gods that you believe in are not truly gods. There's one God that's actually greater than them, more powerful and, and the true, the one God. You believe in all these other ones, but there's a real God. Well, let me just say this. People in India today, a lot of people, are way closer in thought to people in the ancient world receiving Genesis than you or I. They were pagans. They were syncretists. They had multiple, done tons of different gods. Mesopotamia, Babylon, Egypt, three and a half thousand years ago, didn't look anything like our modern world today. It looked a whole lot more like India in the sense of religious belief. People weren't sitting around arguing about whether a higher power existed. They all believed in gods. They, they had lots of gods, thousands of them. And they all had their own creation stories where the gods created things. They all believed this. So you weren't coming into this culture saying, let me prove to you that a god created things and you're not here by you know, naturalistic means. That's all thousands and thousands of years later. No, no, you were talking to a group of people who were raised in Egypt as slaves, who were taught the Egyptian creation stories, who were taught the Egyptian gods. And you were telling them a story 
about creation, about existence, about who the one true God is that is different from the stuff that they heard and they learned. Um, so to really understand Genesis chapter 1, and really the whole book in general, a lot of the Old Testament, is to go back into their world and think the way they thought. What questions were they asking? What would the person writing Genesis have been wanting to say to these people? And when you take that into consideration, you realize the question isn't what the text literally tells us about the creation process, quote-unquote science. The text is about why and to who. <laughs> who did it? Why they do it? What was it for? And what, what is this creator like? Um, so let me give you an example. There's some striking similarities between the Bible's creation story and other creation accounts found among Israel's neighbors. Now you might hear that you're like, oh, so you're saying this was made up. Wrong question. We're not talking about made up. We're talking about communicating truth using ideas that they understood. So a couple of them of this. Um, the Egyptians, the land where the Jewish people, the Hebrews, they were slaves, they were coming out. They shared common beliefs about creation. Uh, the most common belief about creation was there was a large primeval body of dark water, which represented chaos and evil, right? Uh, they called it noon, none. And it represented disorder and what, it was bad. And creation was the act of various gods. Every different group had their own view, their own stories, whether it's Amun-Ra or Tiamat or Marduk. All these different gods went through some process of fighting and warring and bringing order and, and bringing, like reining in all the evil and disorder and the chaos and making it work and holding it together. And common themes of ancient world, along with dark body of water, were uh, separation. The gods would separate things. Um, you know, one god would kill another god and separate the body and form land, and the blood would form the water. And then they would give things a, a name, and a name was a function. So I'll call you moon, and you'll be, you know, you'll govern the night, and I'll call you sun, and you'll govern the day. These are Egyptian ways of thinking of creation. So the the sun was a god, and the moon was a god, and the stars were gods, and the god, there was a god of rain. The rain god was responsible to make sure it rained. So you gave things a name, and the name referred to their function, the part of creation they were in charge of. And all these gods sort of maintained order, and they kept the chaos from seeping back in. They held it together. And as long as the gods were doing what they're supposed to do, all the different gods playing their part, doing what they're supposed to do, then we'll kind of maintain some order and some peace here. Uh, otherwise, it'll fall back into the, into the pre-God's creationary mess and dysfunction. And so what you don't hear in that is the idea of bringing things into existence. In all the ancient creation stories, things already existed. There already was this evil body of water. Nowhere among the Egyptians is the act of bringing something into being exist anywhere. They don't talk about it. Stuff just is kind of already there. Creating things is about bringing order, separating, naming, and giving responsibility. You do this, you do this, you hold this here, you hold this here. Okay, we're good. A, a way to think of it might be like um, if you're a carpenter and you look at a carpenter and you say, uh, or a builder, and a builder builds a house, right? And you say, that builder built that house. The, crea uh, the, the ancient creation story was like, so the builder took the two by fours and put them here, poured the cement here, you know, they put the drywall here, they put the roof here, the door went here, this was the entrance, this is the bathroom. Naming, placing, right? Where did the two-by-fours come from? Where did the cement come from? Where did the shingles come from? Nah, right? That's not part of the creation story. The creation story is more about the builder putting it together. Well, that's not the way that we think. We want to know 
where'd the two by four come from? Like, where did that builder get the cement? Where did the cement even come from? Where does matter come from? We ask that because we're scientific people who were raised in a scientific world. But those weren't questions they were asking. All the different gods had their role to play, keeping everything in order and holding it together. But where the stuff came from, where did the gods come from? Where did their stuff come from? They don't really talk about it. They also had a view of cosmology, the cosmos meaning universe or the way they saw the world. And especially among the Egyptians, they had a three-tier view of the world. They had, uh, the first level was the underworld, where the dead were. The second level was the flat ground that they walked on, where people were. And then above them, you had a great body of water, an ocean. And above the ocean were the gods. And the gods would occasionally open up the floodgates and let the water come down from the ocean above us. That's why it's blue up there, because there's an ocean, right? There's an ocean here, there's an ocean up there, and water will come down occasionally when the gods allow it to. That was their view of how the world worked. Now, you hear all that, and as you're listening to it, if you're familiar with Genesis chapter one, you probably heard a lot of things like, wait a second, (laughs) separated waters, separated land, separated dark and night. He named it, he told it to govern. Uh, (laughs) That looks very similar. It is very similar. So here's how a literary framework works. Uh, And if you're watching on YouTube, you can see a a graphic I'll put up here. Uh, If you're listening, let me explain it to you. Instead of looking at the six days as in order, one, two, three, four, five, six, a literary framework actually looks at this as two halves, um, almost like two Lego pieces that fit together. The first half, days one through three. If you look at days one through three, what you see is God forms spaces. He, He separates light and dark and he forms this thing we might call, I don't know, time and space. He separates uh, water from water, creating an atmosphere. And then he separates land and sea, creating ground and water, right? Those are the first three days. But then the next three days aren't three brand new things. They're actually the things that fill the spaces. So on day one, what does he do? He separates light and dark. On day four, he creates sun and moon to govern the dark in the day. Right? So the sun and moon on day four govern what he created on day one. On day two, he separates and makes the expanse, the atmosphere, the sky, and the water below. Day five, he creates the thing that fills it, birds in the air, fish in the sea. Day three, he separates and creates land and vegetation. Day six, he creates animals and humans to fill the land and rule and govern it. So the first three days are like a Lego piece, and then the second three days are like a Lego piece, and they snap together. He creates the spaces, and then he creates the things to govern and fill the spaces. So think of it more as a sandwich and less of a straight line. That's a literary framework. And if you step back and look at it, you actually, once you see it, you kind of can't unsee it. Day one and four, day two and five, day three and six are space. And then the thing, he creates space by separating, which is a very common Mesopotamian Egyptian way. Then he creates something to fill the space and govern it. Again, gives it a name. He called it this, he called it that. Um, These are all very ancient Near Eastern ways of thinking that an Egyptian slave would hear and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, sure. I get that. That's how, that's, sure, I know that. Okay, so what's the point? Well, okay, first, similarities. God starts with a large, dark body of water, separates it, um, works to give order and creates, everything's in order and functioning. There's governing things, he's naming things, calling things, giving them a function. It looks very similar to the stories they would have heard. If you were an Egyptian slave 
and you're coming out and this guy Moses or whoever is telling you this story, he's like, hey, I know you've heard the creation story about how the Egyptians, your Egyptians masters told you, but I want to tell you a different creation story. I want to tell you about a God and here's what he did. The key of understanding and really grasping is not in the similarities. The key is in the differences because there are some huge differences. Um, first of all, you're talking about people who would have been struggling to remove themselves from pagan roots and worship multiple gods. It was more an argument against the, that belief. It wasn't a scientific statement of here's how scientifically God created it. It was, hey, those of you that have spent your whole life worshiping multiple gods and now I'm going to teach you there's only one God, let me tell you a different creation story. Let me tell you a creation story that is similar, similar enough that it'll make sense to you, but massively subverts your belief system. So the first thing, God is not created. There's nowhere in this creation story where the God comes into being. He is. He exists before all things. He's not, and get this, he's not part of the creation. In the ancient world, they believed their gods were part, like the sun was a god, the moon was a god, the different like Tiamat and Marduk were just part of creation. They were a bit more powerful. This God is outside of it. He's not inside of it. He's outside of it. He's bigger than all of creation. He's unique and unlike any of the gods they believed in. Secondly, he acted alone. There's no battling. There's no arguments. <laughs> there's some great accounts of other creation stories where the gods get upset. There's a whole story about why the gods create humans because some of the lower gods go on strike. Might cover some of that later in a later podcast. But God is completely acting alone. He doesn't need any help. He doesn't need any guidance. And he's not fighting anybody. Oftentimes, the ancient creation stories were two gods warring and the result of spilled blood and dead gods was creation. Nope. God is just making it on his own. All other challengers are either created beings or at best they're imaginary. Wow, that's subversive. If you're hearing this for the first time and you were a slave in Egypt, you're like, wait, what? All the other gods I taught about had nothing, only one God did it all by himself and he just did it? He just spoke a word? He didn't have to fight anybody or war or anything? No, three, he is infinitely powerful. There's no struggle going on here. He's just speaking. Uh, he created all things by the power of his word and he holds it all together. This God is so different from other gods. This God doesn't need your help. All the other gods want you to give them things so they can keep the universe functioning. This God doesn't want your help at all. In fact, he finished it all and he stood back and he took a nap. <laughs> like, wow. And of course, he created us in our image and that's a whole other conversation. I might do a podcast just on the image bearing of God. But then lastly, let me tell you this one too and, and we'll kind of wrap up with this. It's getting a little bit long, but all the other creation stories, are the story of the way that these different gods try to reign in chaos. Everything is broken. It's messed up. It's dark. It's wicked. It's evil. It's vile. The dark waters were, you know, dark waters in the ancient world were a sign of, of something to fear and be, be afraid of. And the gods are bringing order to it through their work and their effort. And they want you to help them kind of hold it all together. And if we don't all do our part, if we don't offer sacrifices and pray and all these kind of things, the gods won't hold it together and chaos will seep back in. The Babylonians use this as an excuse to dominate the world around them because they were trying, by dominating all their countries, they were bringing order to the world the way that their god Marduk was trying to do. Probably what the story of the Tower of Babel was even about. In this story, there's a body of water, but it's not chaos. And the spirit of God is just hovering over it like a dove peacefully. And then God just begins to speak. And every time, every time he does, 
he says, it's good. It's good. It's good. There's no struggle. There's no, there's no chaos. There's no chaos. There's no fighting. There's no tense struggle to hold it all together. Well, wait a second. If there's no chaos when God, this God creates the world, why is there so much chaos now? Oh, maybe we need to talk about why there's so much chaos. And now we get into Genesis 2 and 3. And the answer is not because everything's naturally chaotic and praise our gods who are trying to hold it together. No, the answer is God created it all wonderfully and good and then rested when it was done and then turned it over to us to rule and reign and we screwed it up and we brought chaos. Chaos is not natural to God's creation. Chaos is our fault. Wow. <laughs> like, like, I don't know how that lands with you when you hear it. Maybe you're like, yeah, okay. Imagine being a... Egyptian slave living three and a half thousand years ago and hearing that. All the evil and brokenness isn't something we're trying with the gods to rein in. All the evil and brokenness is a result of us being bad stewards of God's creation. So I think that's really what it's getting at. All these other gods you believe in aren't even, man, they're nothing. They're worthless. All things exist because one God in his infinite power and wisdom spoke and brought it into being. He alone is worthy of your worship and praise. He alone is the powerful one that we should turn to. And he doesn't need anything. The God that you serve is not served by human hands. He needs nothing from you. He didn't need your help in creating. He doesn't need your help in keeping it together. He acted alone. He's all powerful. He doesn't need your help. And he created it good. And we're the ones that messed it up. So when you hear all that, just take one giant step to close this up. What I want you to hear in that is my belief in how I read Genesis 1 as a non-quote-unquote literal is not because of science, although science, i, I got to be honest, is on my side on this. Um, it's not because, well, I just can't reason it out, so I can't believe the Bible. There are places in the Bible that I can't quite reason it out, but I'm just trusting God is true. My belief on it is because as an interpreter of the scriptures, I believe that I am called to know and understand the cultural context of where things are written. I believe that I should be, uh, I should be wise in looking for figurative language, and I should look at the text and see does it make sense with reality in terms of figurative language. And if, if when I'm answering those questions, I come to the conclusion that, you know, based on the historical context, based on who these people were, the questions they were asking, how they thought, based on the fact that there's clearly figurative language that is not reflective of what I know to be true of my reality, stepping back and saying, okay, this actually seems to me, from a biblical studies perspective, to be written more as a poetic, um, metaphorical kind of language, not as something that's meant to teach me science. So when someone says, oh, Pete, you, just, you don't believe in creationism because you just put science ahead of God, it's like, no, it has nothing to do with science. It has everything to do with how I read the text. I, I personally am saying that I, Pete Goodman, do not believe that a literal reading of Genesis 1 is a good reading of the Bible. I just don't. I, and I'm, I apologize to my friends that do, but I don't. Um, and let me end with this. If you do, if you're listening to this podcast and you're infuriated and haven't turned it off yet, let me just tell you, again, we've talked about this in the past. This is what we'd call an open hand issue. There are Christians on both sides and in the middle and Christians who don't care. 
I have never, ever, and will never treat creationism as some kind of massively important issue that everyone has to believe. If you don't believe this, you're not a Christian. No, no, no. It, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter that much. Where it does matter to me, this is where I guess you would say I have some passion for the issue. I have seen in my own life and experience people who wanted to follow Jesus, who heard the message and were caught by it and interested in it, saw something intriguing about Jesus and wanted to explore and began to explore it. But then they got to these kind of questions and they would be told by somebody, well, Christians believe that the earth is 10,000 years old and that this is a literal. And those people would be like, wait, you're telling me, so you're telling me to accept Jesus? I got to believe that? I'm sorry. I've also seen a lot of Christian kids who were raised in homes that this was taught to them and they go off to college and they take their first astronomy or biology or geology class and it's like they're suddenly confronted with, I can't trust the Bible anymore and so I'm done, I'm gonna walk away. That saddens me greatly and I will always want to fight against it. I'm okay if you believe in your heart that the earth is 10,000 years old. I, I, I see some reasons for it. I, I see where you're coming from. It's fine. I'm not okay if you make other people feel like they can't be Christians and believe something different. Now, I know I made a comment from the stage that you might have heard about, well, I think I'm an evolutionist. Um, I want to clarify that as well. I was kind of just being a little tongue-in-cheek, but I do believe in the process of evolution. I think, I think scientifically it makes sense. I see it around me. But I don't believe in natural evolution in the sense that all things are an accident. I am 100% committed to God as the creator of all things. I just tend to take the view that um, I don't read Genesis 1 as how he did it, only that he did it. I don't know how he did it. When I look at what science is telling me, it seems like they have some good ideas. They may be right, they may be wrong. Um, I told my daughter this, and I'll end with this. Uh, we were talking about this idea, and I said, you know, if God wanted to create a flower, he would have two choices. He could snap his finger and a flower would appear. And I would be like, yep, God can do that. I believe it. And he could have. Or he could create soil. And then he could create a seed and he could plant it and water it and watch it grow. And I look around the world and it seems to me that that seems like the way that he did it. It seems to me, based on what I see around me, that God planted a seed and watched it grow using this thing we might call evolution or natural selection or whatever. But he still, he was the one that planted the seed and he was with it all along. I might get to heaven and be like, Pete, you were so wrong. I created it in 7,000 years ago and in six days. You're an idiot. And I'll be like, oh, all right, <laughs> okay. At the end of the day, that's not what I'm passionate about. I'm more passionate about making sure that things like this don't become a stumbling block or a barrier to people who are seeking faith, but this is a hangup for them. If you're listening to this and you've been someone that's been struggling to hold on to faith in Jesus because of some of these questions of science and whatever, I just want you to know, like, um, number one, you're not alone. But number two, there are a lot of these issues that, you know, there's other ways to interpret them and still be faithful to Jesus. And if you can't accept six-day creation, um, that's not a make or break for you following the risen Lord Jesus and giving your life to him. Uh, there are definitely other ways, and I think even in this case, I personally believe more reasonable, logical ways to, um, to read and believe and, and follow his scriptures without finding that tension. And of course, there's some other areas this runs into. 
and so maybe we'll tackle some. I, I enjoy that. I got a lot of questions about end time. So maybe we'll do a whole podcast on that. What is the rapture, all that stuff. Um, the question of what does it mean to be created in God's image, some of this stuff, and, and even what about the flood and all the other Genesis. Maybe we'll try to touch on some of this stuff. But again, we'll be doing it from the perspective that I want us to know that um, there are ways to be true to the Bible and hold fast to what God is wanting to teach us through it, but maybe not interpret it as literally as sometimes makes us go into places that are really hard for us and sometimes lose our faith over. Um, we got to be wise with that and open sometimes. So if you have any more questions about this kind of stuff, if, if, if this sparked anything for you and you want to talk about it, if you want to yell at me, um, uh, email me at brandon at risecitychurch.com. No. Uh, <laughs> feel free, pete at risecitychurch.com. Um, if you have anything else, if you're like, hey, you said this, but I don't quite understand it, reach out to me. I, I'm, I'm, I really want you to hear this. I am doing this for you guys. I, I mean, I, I'm... I really am. I want to be a resource to you. And don't ever feel like you're bothering me or wasting my time. If you have a question or something's confusing or something's just weighing on your heart, shoot me an email, Pete at risechurch.com. Um, jump on social media, find me. Uh, you know, I have a bunch of stuff now. I've got pretty active on social media. I even have a webpage, likestars.us. You can go on there and click a button that sends an email right to me. But I would love to talk to you and hear more about you. Um, so hope this was beneficial. I hope we're still friends. Um, if not, I don't know. Sorry. But uh, yeah, we'll be back um, with future podcasts, talking about these kind of issues and keep answering all of your questions. So in the meantime, thanks for joining us. Be sure again, like, subscribe, smash the like button. There, I said it. Oh, I feel stupid. Uh, anyway, um, but I would really appreciate uh, you, you know, sharing this and, and helping spread the word, help more people find what we're talking about. So have a great week and we'll see you next time on the Road Like Stars podcast. Thank you, everybody. Bye. You consume me and I burn.